Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is Tuesday, August the 25th, 2009. And I'm just fine. I'm just fine. I hope you're fine. I'm telling <laughs> Oh, I got out of bed this morning at 4 o'clock. And I went out on my balcony. And I took a look around and... I don't know, very strange. I'm not sure quite what planet I'm on. I said to myself, stop the world, I want to get off. Yes, I know what it was. I was listening to a story on the radio. It wasn't on this station. I won't mention the station. Anyway, it was about a gentleman. Fortunately, he has committed suicide. I'm grateful to, for that. But he he um, chopped up his... Um, Wife, he had met her on one of those shows, you know, where you uh, try to attract a rich husband. Anyway, he had uh, married this woman, and then he killed her and cut her into, chopped her up into little pieces. Yes, and shoot one of the pieces as an example to the rest. Never mind. He he cut off her fingers uh, because of identification, right? And he cut out her teeth so that they wouldn't um, track down and find out who she was. Anyway, he left her. In a trunk or something, he left her all chopped up. Anyway, uh, he thought he got away with it, but he didn't. They uh, figured out how to catch him, and uh, they went for him. And fortunately, they found him in a hotel or motel somewhere, and he had killed himself. Uh, the uh, thing that he forgot was that her uh, breast implants had a serial number on them, and, <laughs> and the woman was identified by the uh, serial number on her breast implants. And I sat out on my balcony, and I thought about my parents, and I always imagine my parents sitting with me listening to the news, the the stories that... We hear now in 2009, <laughs> sometimes I see them laughing insanely, other times they, they look quite frightened. Now, uh, my mother died in 1947, my father in 1961, and I think today's world would be, if not, well, not unrecognizable to them, but uh, let's face it, the culture shock would be extreme. It isn't that... You know, things are that much worse. It's just that there's so much more mayhem. Anyway, the country is threatened by screwballs. It always was. It's just that now they have, now they have the net, right? These militants have gone bonkers. I keep thinking that they're there for our entertainment, but I'm not so sure about that. The guns terrify me. You remember back 
in the old days when the uh, uh, Black Panthers went to Sacramento with guns. All hell broke loose. Weren't going to let those guys get away with that. Uh, Judy Berry, remember? Beautiful woman, uh, militant. One picture of her with a gun and Sheriff went absolutely wacko. Uh, I keep thinking, I look at these people with the guns, these militants, hanging around these so-called town meetings and I say, well, now, if ignorance is bliss, how come there aren't more happy folks, right? <laughs> Actually, these these guys are not ignorant exactly. Uh, they are misguided. Let's put that put it that way. They have been uh, misinformed. Anyway, the guns, I suppose, um, I suppose, are symbolic. I hope so. I keep thinking that this is a first. Even Bill Clinton didn't have to face that kind of nonsense. Anyway, uh, I keep thinking that uh, this is some kind of uh, echo, not echo, a kind of a, it presages something. You remember back in the Weimar Republic in Germany, all those brown-shirted people, the folks that acted out. Uh, I remember uh, reading... Wilhelm Reich's book, The Mass Psychology of Fascism, <laughs> bloody hell, group think, all that stuff. You know how it is when you get people in mobs, how they can behave so strangely. Old Carl Jung, great psychologist, psychiatrist, anyway, he wrote about all this paranoid ideation, he called it, uh, you know... <laughs> Uh, James Thurber called it a propaganda, right? Yes, a, he's a propaganda. Anyway, uh, the paranoid, uh, waves that pass through societies and cultures, uh, uh, we're not quite sure what triggers them. Carl Jung seemed to think they came, I think he once said about three times a century. I'm, I'm not sure. I think they're speeding up now. I think the, uh, the waves of fear, it's, it's a free-floating anxiety. It builds up, and sometimes it is based on reality, but most often, I guess I just call it fact-free fascism, or what is it no-nothing nihilism will do. Uh, it's called, I don't feel good. Somebody has to be to blame. Where is a scapegoat? Uh, you know, most of the time, <laughs> you you can take it out on the cat or your wife. But anyway, what is happening, I guess, is these people feel fear. It's based on fear. They don't know anything. They, uh, you know, reality doesn't torment them. What they feel is that there's something wrong with a black family in the White House. Some reason that's threatening to them, you know, white supremacy. Uh, that's the right order of things. It's basic to their, I guess you call it their ideology. I, I, I call it their, what do you call it? Their, their simplistic mythology, these militants. Uh, I guess... I guess people will do damn near anything to make themselves feel good. 
Ambiguity doesn't make you feel good. No ambiguity is allowed, these guys, because, you know, the minute you start saying, well, on the other hand, you know, then you're some kind of uh, thinker or liberal and you lose all your your passion and your power, you know. A structured belief system, that's what we want. That's how we sleep nights. Uh, I remember when I first read about uh, these paranoid fears of the other, I didn't quite get it. I didn't know what Carl Jung was talking about until I understood something about, uh, well, let's call it, I guess we call it sexism. Uh, I never understood. I kept asking men why they were afraid of women. They would be very insulted, of course, and say, no, they weren't afraid of women at all. <laughs> you know, they dreaded them, though. They dreaded them, they said. I guess that was the difference. Uh, but, you know, the other is always defined as something you're not, you know. Uh, let's see, the black, the Jew, the woman, anyone who isn't a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, a wasp. Uh, I remember at one point I saw a glimmer of hope because there was a group of um, Christian militants. They were called promise keepers. They said that they were nonviolent. You know, they just wanted to restore hierarchy and order to the home. Uh, they wanted women to understand uh, you know, that God was at the top of the pyramid and then then the husband and then the, the wife was allowed to uh, support the system, but uh, she was to hold her peace, you know. Uh, anyway, the Promise Keepers invited African Americans to join the club, the group, and uh, I thought, well, okay, that's a kind of progress. But I'm not sure that worked out. I'm afraid that most African Americans will not escape the label of other. Obviously, some people are still concerned about that. I I looked at this beautiful family in the White House and I thought, we've got it made. Talk about Americana. Who could be more American, more contemporary than Barack Obama and his wife, Michelle? Very different people, the two of them. Uh, she had an entirely different history. Uh, he, of course, is multi-everything. There's nothing he's not. You know? <laughs> so I thought, it's what do you call that? We used to call that a, um, uh, a sort of a Creole miracle, rainbow Um uh, I thought, uh, everyone will be able to look at this family and find themselves in the picture. But apparently, we have a tendency to look for the things about others which are different. I remember once in school, we decided that, of course, the happy people, you know, well, maybe the Japanese, you know, or the Swedes, people who lived in a country where everyone you know, was pretty much alike and had the same religion and looked the same, that kind of thing. But let's face it, we always find ways to separate, to find a difference. I don't know what that's all about. It has something to do with our biology. The need to separate from others so that we can devour them, I guess. Go and eat them, yes. Uh, I don't know how people change that, Uh I think 
It's something that has to begin in childhood. Uh, all of us feel it from time to time. But our responses depend upon our experience, the way we grew up. I've always been convinced that I did not feel different from other people. I felt threatened by other people when I thought they might be violent. I think the only time I've had the feeling of otherism, if I really search my mind, I think it's language. And it isn't that I don't feel uh, connected to people when they don't speak my language. I just feel kind of left out, kind of lonely. You know, everyone is chattering away in another language and because I'm kind of a verbal person I just feel very left out and so I have to learn their language so before this they were talking about how human beings have to learn the language of the animals you know talk like the animals we have to learn how to feel like a chimp and swim like a dolphin I'd give anything to spend at least one lifetime as a dolphin Maybe a bird. Actually, dolphins would be my my first pick. But the truth is that uh, some people do connect with the other animals. Uh, I still think it would be nice if we try harder. I remember uh, Margaret Mead used to explain, she said, the way to connect with people that you're unfamiliar with, with people whose language you do not understand, whose words you do not understand. She says the first thing she did was show pictures of her daughter. She'd take out photographs of her little girl, and she said that, of course, connected her at once with the women in any group. Uh, I don't think it should be so difficult. Certainly there are situations in which all of us are threatened by our species. (laughs) I remember once having a long political discussion with... (laughs) I really shouldn't talk about this on the air. It's too disgusting. (laughs) It really is, but... uh, Oh, yes. um, A rapist who busted into my house in the early 70s, I wound up trying to give him a political education. That was a laugh. One of these days I must write it up, but it's just too appalling, people. Just too appalling to discuss. Uh, anyway, we have common ground with everyone. Uh, it's just that uh, sometimes they may have the automatic weapon or the knife, in which case uh, I suggest that, uh, you know, we make plans. Uh, I hope that the president, our good president, and his good wife, Michelle, and their beautiful children, Malia and Sasha, are as strong as they are happy. They appear to be very healthy in mind and spirit. Uh, I was watching the other day and I thought, isn't it nice that our president is in a position to enjoy his job? He likes his work. Imagine most of the left people that I know want him to suffer the agonies of the damned, and I'm sure he's going through that right now. Couldn't be worse, but it's also kind of pleasant that he took time to take his two girls to Yellowstone, and then went to the Grand Canyon, and then I caught a shot of him. I was playing golf, I believe. They were back there on the East Coast yesterday or a couple days ago, and uh, I think... That is a good thing. I think it is smart of him 
to uh, maintain his image as just an all-American guy, you know. It is interesting that people don't pay much attention, you know, to all his, um, what do you call that, uh, credentials. He has that wonderful sister, that Indonesian woman, and all of his family in Kenya. Uh, I think they should try to get a huge family tree, get them all there. And then Michelle's family, get them all there so that people could see that uh, it is a family, family of nations all together right here in the United States. We are the miracle, the rainbow miracle. Uh, Actually, I think it seems like, well, stories like that hideous one I started out with today about the woman who was identified by the serial number on her breast implant that make me wonder sometimes if my country hasn't gone a, a little grim, if things haven't become a little toxic, a little poisonous. I think that my parents would be a little upset, a little frightened. Uh, now, they saw World War Two, so God knows they knew that the human condition could be uh, hell on earth. But uh, I suppose it's a question of the body count. This morning I heard, yes, that <laughs> yes, China Chairman Mao's body count was bigger than Hitler's, bigger than Stalin's, yes. Who's the meanest one of all? Who's the wickedest? Is the United States of America the bad guy? Well, yes, we have been. Uh, Senator, yes, McGovern was talking about that the other day, and uh, uh, the interviewer was saying that he wondered how things might have gone if McGovern had been elected president of these United States. Uh, I don't know, I don't know. I have noticed lately that I'm seized by terrific, terrific uh, attacks of nostalgia. It isn't that I think the past was any better. I think that when I was younger, I had more uh, energy for hope, more more time to feel that, um, you know, that great arc of history was bending towards justice. The older I get, I'm afraid I'm turning into a Mark Twain, you remember. Twain was the one who said at some point late in life that it was better never to have been born at all. Uh, some of us go a little grim. Uh, I'm not sure. I think it's probably the arthritis. Yes, I'm always saying that rheumatism is worse than communism when you're 75. Uh, this week I was looking at uh, an article about a man my age, Leonard Cohen. It's called State of Grace, Leonard Cohen's Return by Sasha Freer-Jones. It's under pop music in the August New Yorker, August 24th, 2009, New Yorker. has a very nice uh, piece called State of Grace, and it's about Leonard Cohen's tour. And I thought, uh, you know, how sweet, how um, how warm it is to know that Leonard Cohen is making his, I guess, his farewell tour. Uh, and then I read that the reason he's doing it, <laughs> well, he doesn't say uh, specifically uh, what he does say is he says that one of the reasons uh, he's going on the road 
is because he's broke. He says, well, that might have something to do with it. Uh, the poor guy, Leonard Cohen, the sweet man, uh, the 1970s angel, he was ripped off by his former manager, Kelly Lynch. That guy, Kelly Lynch, let's see. I assume that's a man. I'm not sure. K-E-L-L-E-Y, Kelly Lynch, defrauded Leonard Cohen of at least $5 million. He left Cohen with about 150000 Okay. <laughs> so he still has enough to buy a sandwich, maybe pay the rent. Uh, uh, Cohen sued and won a $7 million default judgment, but he has been unable to recover any of his money. Isn't that the saddest damn thing? Uh, anyway, obviously, since Leonard Cohen is a philosopher and a, uh, a Zen Buddhist, he has risen above it all. It says here in the late 90s, Leonard Cohen spent five years living in the Mount Baldy Zen Center. His name there was, I'm not sure if I pronounce it correctly, Shakan J-I-K-A-N. That is a Dharmic word. It means silent one. Gee whiz, Leonard Cohen called the silent one. It's a curious thing, isn't it? Uh, anyway, in 2004... That's when he lost the money. Uh, I guess he decided that he had to begin a world tour that started last year. It extends through November 13th and includes roughly 200 shows. Now, that's a lot for a man his age. Uh, Madison Square Garden, October the 23rd. Uh <laughs> Maybe I'll try to, if he gets to the Bay Area, maybe I'll try to uh, get there. According to this article, Leonard Cohen is uh, 74, trim and dapper. His craggy voice fills the room completely. Ah, uh, uh, yes, this reviewer says, I have seen very few shows where a single voice dominated so clearly. Right, it's so nice to hear the singer for a change. You know how that goes. Huh? His band is made up of players who have been with him since 1979, along with some new hands. But, uh, yes, as Roscoe Beck, that's his bassist, right, and his music director, as Roscoe Beck put it, if you can't hear the lyrics then the point of doing it at all has been missed. We're there to support Leonard. Gosh, I love that. Now, Joan Baez is here in town again. There's another one, uh, that aching soprano. I am ashamed to say maybe it's my ears. I have so much trouble hearing the singers these days that I have to go back to Leonard uh, Cohen and... Uh, Let's see, the best of his live albums, live in London. I have some bits and pieces that I picked up here at the station, uh, I guess, and I have the, the very oldest one. Uh, Tower of Song would be, I guess, the first one to start with. Uh, 
primitive 80s keyboard, the one he uses on Tower of Song. Uh. <laughs> I was born like this, he writes in a Tower of Song. I had no choice. I was born with the gift of a golden voice. He's more self-mocking than ever. This elicits a huge cheer from the crowd, especially when he sings in the song Bird on a Wire, Bird on a Wire. I saw this beggar, he was leaning on his wooden crutch. He no longer hits the high note at the end of that line, but the pitch descends and the next line feels all the more intimate. He says, Leonard... You just can't ask for all that much. Uh, anyway, let me let me read you just a few lines uh, from a poem of Leonard Cohen's. It's in a different issue of the New Yorker, the one for March the second, two thousand and nine. The article, the review of uh, Leonard Cohen's tour called "State of Grace." You can find that. In August 24 issue by Sasha Freer Jones. And then there's this uh, poem. Well, it's a song. Uh, I don't know why people still distinguish poems from songs. I don't myself. Uh, this is a poem that Leonard Cohen wrote long ago. I'm sure you've heard it. Uh, it's called A Street. I used to be your favorite drunk, good for one more laugh, then we both ran out of luck, and luck was all we had. You put on a uniform to fight the Civil War, I tried to join, but no one liked the side I'm fighting for, so let's drink to when it's over, and let's drink to when we meet, I'll be standing on this corner, where there used to be a street. You left me with the dishes and a baby in the bath. And you're tight with the militias. You wear their camouflage. I guess that makes us equal. But I want to march with you. An extra in the sequel to the old red, white, and blue. So let's drink to when it's over and let's drink to when we meet. I'll be standing on this corner where there used to be a street. I cried for you this morning, and I'll cry for you again. But I'm not in charge of sorrow, so please don't ask me when. I know the burden's heavy as you bear it through the night. Some people say it's empty. But that doesn't mean it's light. So let's drink to when it's over and let's drink to when we meet. I'll be standing on this corner where there used to be a street. It's going to be September now for many years to come, every heart adjusting to that strict September drum. I see the ghost of culture with numbers on his wrist. Salute some new conclusion which all of us have missed. 
So let's drink to when it's over, and let's drink to when we meet. I'll be standing on this corner where there used to be a street. That's Leonard Cohen's song, poem, A Street. You can find it and uh, keep it. It's in the New Yorker for March the 2nd, 2009. A very, very special song. This has been Jennifer Stone. Be back on the air, 8.20 Thursday morning. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Light em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow. Catter, a community activist affiliated with the Concilio Latino Enrichment. I am also a freelance writer. What I will bring to the KPFA local station board if I am elected is a dedication to serve the needs of underrepresented communities. So please vote for me, Jaime Catter. Also vote for Steve Zeltzer and get more information at voicesforjusticeradio.org. My name is Andrea Pichet, and I'm running for the local station board. I'm a school teacher and a musician, and I've also been a community organizer in Berkeley for over 25 years. I want to bring independence and fresh ideas to the board. I love KPFA, and I want to see it return to the cutting edge of community radio within the struggle for justice and education. I'm supported by Independence for Community Radio, and you can check out the website there at www.indyradio.com. 